The Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 34, beginning at verse 1, we'll be reading through verse 9 this evening. The word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain, but no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to John. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 14. We'll be reading through verse 18 this evening. The Word of our God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Here endeth the new covenant reading. Please keep your place here as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. The universe is a really big place. If you can get up in a mountain somewhere, away from the lights of an urban environment, and look up at the stars at night, it can really make you feel small by comparison. And yet even that's rather misleading. On a dark night, away from urban lights, we can forget that we are only seeing an infinitesimally small portion of everything that exists. 
If you were to take just one grain of sand on the beach, you would see more of the beach than you do when you look at our entire solar system, indeed of our entire galaxy, of the universe. The universe is a really big place. Let's try to get a sense of just how vast the universe is. Light travels at an astonishing 186,000 miles per second. Not per hour, not per minute, but per second. If you walk 20 miles a day, six days a week, it would take you nearly that long to travel as far as light travels in a single second. By the way, if you walk 20 miles a day, six days per week, it would take you more than 14,000 years just to reach our sun. Uh, no matter how healthy your diet is, uh, I don't think you're going to make it. It takes 100,000 years, not 100,000 seconds or 100,000 hours, but 100,000 years for light to get from one side of the Milky Way to the other. And we can't even wrap our minds around how big that is. But it gets even crazier than that. The distance from the Milky Way to the nearby galaxies is measured in the millions of light years. And astronomers estimate that there are at least 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe. And frankly, they have no idea of what, whether or not what they're calling the observable universe is the only universe that there is. So if you want to know what the universe is like, where would you start? Well, you don't really have any choice. You have to start here. This is where you're located. Um, you can examine light and radio waves as they hit our planet. You can hook up with NASA and examine exciting data that it's collecting from deep space probes. But you are still stuck with a problem. You are only looking at a minuscule, infinitesimally small part of the entire universe that actually exists. Uh, this is both incredibly exciting, uh, but it also should be very humbling for anybody who works in astrophysics or astronomy. The universe as a whole remains almost entirely a mystery to us. It is just that vast. Yet this evening, we come to consider something that is bigger or better, someone who is bigger than the entire universe. As we heard at the beginning of John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that made that has been made. That is... Jesus is infinitely bigger than the universe that he created. And if it's hard to know where to start to come to know the universe, where can we go to begin to apprehend the word that is made flesh? If none of us would claim to know all of creation, how can we ever hope to know the creator? Where would you go to discover him? Beloved, the quest for God to know God would be utterly hopeless if it depended on you seeking him. That, that, that's the, the troubling news, as it were. 
But thanks be to God, the Lord has sought us, and he has revealed himself to us. Verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Astonishingly, the God who spoke this incredibly vast, unspeakably vast universe into existence took to himself a true human nature, and as we heard in adult Sunday school this morning, chose to be conceived in the womb of a single human being and then born of the Virgin Mary. He walked through the streets of Jerusalem and the grain fields of Galilee. Then he offered up his life for the life of the world. Through all of this, God was giving us his fullest revelation of himself. Now, it's true that the Lord had been revealing himself before. He'd been revealing himself through the things he had created. He had been revealing himself through the special revelation of the Old Testament given to us through prophets. But the fullest revelation of who God is and what he is like comes to us in the word made flesh. In these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. John is making a connection between the revelation of the word made flesh and the old covenant in verse 14. And he's going to develop this idea in the next few verses. Yet regrettably, this connection can be missed because translations tend to smooth this out. Right? The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. But the word translated dwelt does not mean lived, does not mean um, but that was the place he just happened to be. It means he pitched his tent, or quite literally, he tabernacled among us. So you have to step back into ancient Israel, even before the temple was built. Although it goes along with the temple as well. Uh, there's a reason for Jesus to have the language of tabernacle rather than temple, because like the tabernacle, he was mobile. He moved around Israel and wasn't fixed in one location. But if you imagine that you were an ancient Israelite who had recently crossed the Jordan River with Joshua into the Promised Land, if you wanted to know God better, if you wanted to experience his grace and truth, where would you go? And the answer is you'd go to the tabernacle where God had set his name and his special presence, where there was the Ark of the Covenant residing. It was at the tabernacle in particular that the Lord had set his name. It was there that you would witness the priest offering up animals for the sins of the people, pointing forward to the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. It was at the tabernacle that housed the bread of the presence and the menorah, which signified the Lord's provision of food and light for his people. And of course, the tabernacle contained the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, and the symbolic presence of God dwelling in the midst of his people. When we read verse 14, we need to keep all of that in mind. For when John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that word dwelt is not a word that means lived. It means tabernacle. Jesus took to himself a true human nature 
and he tabernacled among us. Everything that the tabernacle was or pointed forward to in the Old Covenant, Jesus was, and he fully was, as he brought in the New Covenant. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have beheld his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I want to slow down for a moment here and ask you a simple question. Sounds simple, but it may not actually be clear. What exactly does the Bible mean? What exactly does John mean by the word glory? But you, you hear the word glory a fair number of times in the Bible, but sometimes that can be more of a religious word that just kind of bounces back in our head and says something important. Well, glory does point to something that's important. The Old Testament word for glory carries the idea of weightiness. That's actually the fundamental issue behind the word glory. The word in the Old Testament, kavod, which we translate glory, carries the idea of weightiness or great significance. Here's the point. That thing of great weightiness described as glory, as we focus on it, causes everything else to recede into the background. Right? That which is most important gets your attention and causes other things, even things that you previously thought were really important, to now be put in their proper place. We celebrate this truth when we sing, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's what the weightiness of glory does for us. I trust that you've all had experiences like that. As you contemplate the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ, other matters that perhaps even just a few minutes earlier seem so important are put into perspective. Because Jesus is so much more important. But is that all there is to glory? Is that what John meant when he wrote, We beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, if we didn't know anything else, because we didn't have the New Testament, and we were told that God was going to reveal his glory in his Son, it would have been very easy for us to imagine an experience uh, like Isaiah had in Isaiah chapter 6. Right in the year King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and sitting upon a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, right? With two he's flying. And the angels are crying out one to another, glory, right? No, that's not what they're crying out. They're crying out, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Is that what you think of when you think of glory? That is, after all, a manifestation of the glory of God. And actually, Jesus has a few moments of that in his life. Think about up on the Mount of Transfiguration, where the, the glory of God, that in a sense is veiled through his flesh, is flooded out for a moment and overwhelms the three of the inner circle of the disciples. But only three of the disciples saw that, and only for a brief moment. 
That is not primarily what the Gospel of John means when it talks about the glory of Jesus. Instead, Jesus reveals the weightiness of God in terms of God being meek and lowly of heart. You know, he chose to be born in a manger. He worked in a carpenter's shop as a boy. It was said of Jesus, a bruised reed he would not break and a smoldering wick he would not put out. The paradox is that Jesus displayed God's glory by displaying strength and weightiness through humility and even what appeared at times to be weakness. Jesus himself will speak of the Son of Man being lifted up, that is, executed on the cross as his own glorification. The cross, which superficially looked like a display of weakness, was actually a great demonstration of the glory of God as the Son of God trampled Satan's sin and death underfoot. And one of the great ironies, of course, is, is the Romans crucified people to put them to shame, and the cross has become the universal symbol of Christianity all over the face of the earth. The glory that Christ reveals in the Gospel of John is the glory of God's grace and truth, and the fullest manifestation of that glory comes at the cross. Verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Now Jesus declared that John the Baptist is the greatest man ever born of a woman in the entire Old Testament. Actually, up until that time, but is up to himself. But the Baptist's consistent testimony was that he was utterly insignificant compared to the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. Right? I'm not even worthy to untie the latch of his sandal. Since John the Baptist was the forerunner, uh, that is the person who came before the Messiah, why would John the Baptist say of Jesus that he was before me? Well, you know that answer from the first verse of the Gospel of John. We talked about it in Sunday school today. It's because Jesus has existed since before time began. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. The beloved John the Baptist was saying this long before the New Testament documents were ever written. Right? John isn't quoting Matthew or the Gospel of John, right? John the Baptist is saying this before the New Testament came into existence, even one dash. How did John know about the pre-existence of the Messiah? Well, John the Baptist knew the Old Testament. In particular, the prophet Micah taught the pre-existence of the Messiah hundreds of years before John or Jesus were even born. It's one of those things where the passages are familiar to us because we read them every Christmas. Uh, we need to remind ourselves that these aren't just nice things to say at Christmas. These are God's revelation to us. Micah writes, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, 
From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. That translation doesn't quite do it. The Hebrew says, from everlasting. So John the Baptist cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Even before the resurrection and ascension of our Lord, John the Baptist had a profound sense of the weightiness and significance of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. The obvious question for us to ask ourselves is, what about us? And I don't mean in theory. Um, When I look out at the congregation here, I know that in theory we would all mark off, yes, we get the right answers. But are we thinking about Jesus in terms of his eternal and unfathomable glory that he has revealed to us through his life and particularly through his death on the cross? Frankly, we live in an age where the glory of God rests lightly on the church. And not simply on the world, but the glory of God rests lightly on the church. Many American churchgoers act as though God is a nice addition to their lives to help them deal with what they think are the really weightier things of life. Sadly, many Christians have reversed the meaning of the hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, by focusing on the fleeting things of this life as being that which matters most, the glory of God in Christ has grown strangely dim for them. The question tonight is, what about us? How weighty is the glory of God in Jesus Christ in our lives? Verses 16 and 17. For from his fullness we have all received Grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Here's the good news. Uh, Jesus doesn't just reveal God's glory so we can apprehend it. That would destroy us. Jesus reveals God's glory on our behalf. We confess in the words of the Nicene Creed, it is for us and for our salvation that he came down from heaven. Jesus reveals the glory of God on our behalf. Or as John puts it in verse 16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. See, Jesus did not merely tabernacle among us so that he would be Emmanuel, God with us. He came to be Emmanuel, God for us. To graciously act on our behalf and out of his fullness to fill us with every good and perfect gift. What exactly does it mean when the Bible says grace upon grace? You get a sense there of a heaping up. Um, You might seem to think that this is simply God heaping up grace on his people through the person and work of Jesus. And beloved, that's certainly something that's true. But that is not what John is saying. I mean, we are right to sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But this passage is talking about the overflowing of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ 
But John is getting at something a little bit different. The preposition John uses here does not mean on. Does not mean on. Grace upon grace. It means instead of. Grace instead of grace. Um, Why is that important? Well, John's talking out of the Old Covenant. And he's saying the Old Covenant administration was incredibly gracious. That's now being replaced with a new administration in the coming of Jesus Christ that is far more gracious still. Um, Interestingly, the New International Version is done in about face in translating this verse. The old New International Version, well, that sounds kind of funny, uh, the older version of the New International Version rather boldly paraphrased grace replacing grace with one blessing after another. The latest version of the NIV now reads much more literally, (coughs) grace in place of grace already given. I think that's a very helpful update. Now, if you're still scratching your head, um, that's good. Let's see if we can learn something together this evening. How can we best understand the expression grace replacing grace? The first word of verse 17 is the key. Verse 17 begins with the word for. This means that verse 17 is going to explain this expression grace replacing grace in some way. So let's look at verse 17 and then see if we can understand what grace replacing grace means in this particular context. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So John is giving us a contrast between the law that came through Moses and the grace and truth that came through Jesus Christ. We need to figure out how these two things fit together in order to understand what he is saying. First, what is being contrasted And second, how does the contrast work? Now, the contrast might seem straightforward enough. On the one hand, there is the law that came through Moses. On the other hand, there is the grace and truth that came through Jesus Christ. But it is essential that we go back and understand the phrase, the law was given through Moses in its original Jewish context. That's because modern Americans, including Christians, When we hear the word law, what we hear is commandments. That's not how a Jewish person heard the word law. They heard Torah, instruction. Everything that God had for his people in the Old Testament could be lumped into this category of Torah. It's about far more than commandments. Almost every first century Jew who who had heard John talking about Moses in conjunction with the revelation of the glory of God would have immediately thought of the time when Moses asked the Lord to show him his glory. You remember how that played out? Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I shall show mercy. 
But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will place you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back but my face you shall not see. Then the Lord passed by Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, to the third and the fourth generation. There are three critical things for us to see in that passage. First, the revelation of the Torah through Moses was about far more than commandments. It's not what Americans think of law. This is what the Bible itself, what Jewish people in the Old Testament thought of law. It was about far more than the commandments they were supposed to keep. The Torah was a revelation of the merciful and gracious God who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Second, the revelation of the Torah through Moses was a wonderful blessing. It just freaks me out when in reform circles I talk to pastors who seem to act as though the Old Testament was this horrendous burden rather than being the wonderful gift of God. Right? They're, they're, they're not taking the Bible on its own terms. The revelation of the Torah through Moses was a wonderful blessing. We'll say say more about that in a moment. Third, the revelation of the glory of God to Moses was still veiled. Moses could not look upon the face of God and live. This leads to our second question. How does the Torah revealed through Moses relate to the grace and truth that are revealed through Jesus Christ. Oddly, many American Christians see the relationship in terms of moving from that which is bad to that which is good. As we have just seen, that is the exact opposite of the way that ancient Jews, and of course the Old Testament itself, uh, is portrayed. That is not the way ancient Jewish people thought. Our ancient Jewish brothers and sisters rightly and understood the Torah— Uh, In terms of Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day long. And again, how sweet are your words in my mouth. They are sweeter than the honey of the honeycomb. And the goodness doesn't stop with the words that came through Moses. In the old covenant, the Lord redeemed his people out of bondage in, in Egypt. He is their deliverer. He brought them into the promised land through the sacrificial system, continually held forth the means by which their sins could be forgiven, by which they could have fellowship and life with God. Furthermore, the New Testament says the very same thing about the old. For example, Hebrews 8.6 tells us this, But now Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry, as he is the mediator 
of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. Now, think about those words for a second. Particularly think about the phrase, more excellent. If Jesus' ministry is more excellent, what does that tell you about the Old Testament? It was excellent. The, the, the movement is not from bad to good. It's from excellent to even more excellent. That, that, that's the way the argument works. And with that in mind, I think we have enough context to see what John is getting, uh, getting at when he writes, from his fullness we have all received grace replacing grace. Uh, we can paraphrase this meaning like this. For from Christ's fullness, we have all received one exceedingly gracious administration, replacing the previous administration of God's grace. Let me give you that, that again. For from Christ's fullness, we have all received one exceedingly gracious administration, replacing the previous administration of God's grace. That is, the Old Testament was good, the new covenant is better. The old covenant brought grace, the new covenant is exceedingly gracious, heaping grace upon grace. The Torah, if it came through Moses, gave us God's truth, but Jesus is the truth, come in human flesh. As we learn from the opening words from the letter of Hebrews, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. John is assuming that we all get how spectacular and good the revelation of God's truth and grace in the Old Covenant was. That's his starting point. And he wants us to grasp that the grace and truth revealed in Jesus Christ is so much clearer, so much greater, and so much better. For the Torah, and what a precious gift it is, was given through Moses grace and truth in their fullest, came through Jesus Christ. But as the chief point to keep in mind as John rounds out the prologue with verse 18. Look at verse 18 with me. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, this verse naturally raises a question for us about Moses. After all, Exodus 33 tells us that the Lord spoke with Moses face to face as a man speaks with a friend. So what does John mean when he says, no one has ever seen God? And I think we can clarify this with three fairly straightforward clarifications or observations. First, when Moses asked to see God's glory, the Lord told Moses that no one could see his face and live. 
So John is simply agreeing with the words of the Lord to Moses at this point. Second, we should take the expression the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks with a friend as a figure of speech that indicates the intimate relationship the Lord had with Moses and that the Lord was speaking directly to Moses rather than simply giving him visions and dreams. This would not have required Moses to physically see the Lord. Third, the idea behind seeing the Lord in verse 18 includes the idea of understanding in a comprehensive way. John is saying, nobody has ever gone and spent a lot of time with the Lord and then returned to tell us exactly what he is like. But Jesus, who from all eternity has been intimately familiar with the Father, this Jesus has made the Father known to us. Throughout the Gospel of John, we will hear the same truth from the lips of Jesus. As Jesus will tell Nicodemus in John chapter 3, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. This is the same point that the Gospel of John is making in chapter 1, verse 18. There are two more interesting and important things we ought to note about this verse. First, Verse 18 unambiguously describes Jesus as being God. As the ESV puts it, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. In light of our Sunday school classes, some of you might be interested to know that several really good ancient manuscripts word this slightly differently. Instead of saying the only God, they say, the only begotten God. You can see why later scribes might have been a little bit troubled with the idea of the only begotten God and have changed that a bit. Um, I don't think the meaning is fundamentally different for us. Uh, But it does make clear that the language of Jesus being begotten refers to him being eternally begotten and not to his birth in Bethlehem. Second, Sometimes Christians get confused when they read that the word became flesh or speak about God becoming man. Uh, Those words, we heard once again in Sunday school this morning, do not mean that God undertook a change. He was God, and then he became man. Rather, they mean that the Son of God, who always was, is, and ever shall be perfectly God, took to himself a true human nature in time without diminishing any aspect of what it meant for him to be God. Verse 18 helpfully makes this clear when it speaks of Jesus as the only begotten God who is at the Father's side. Remember that when John's um, uh, saying this, right, Um, the human nature of Jesus grew tired and slept and all those things during his earthly life. Yet even while the human nature of Jesus became tired and slept and even died on the cross, his divine nature was upholding the universe by the word of his power. 
And we just have to come to grips with the fact that these are mysteries that we are not going to fully get our minds around. While Jesus was dying on the cross, he was still the eternal God upholding the universe by the word of his power. In fact, you may be thinking, I just can't get my mind around all of that. To which I respond, neither can I. And that's part of the point, right? A God that we can fully comprehend is way too small to be the God who created all things. The glory of tonight's passage is that it reveals the Son of God who has all that grandeur and glory in himself, taking on human flesh to be God with us and to be God for us. The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. We have seen his glory. The glory is of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. If you feel like the Almighty is distant from you, and you have no way of coming to know him better, remember that God does not call you to seek out and discover him in your own power. The living God has sought you out and he has revealed himself to you so that you might know the glory of God in Jesus Christ. For the word became flesh and he tabernacled among us, full of grace and truth, so that in him we would be near to and know God. Or perhaps you were overwhelmed this evening with the stresses of work and family with financial burdens or physical pains. One day the Lord will wipe away every tear from your eyes, but beloved, that day is not tonight. In this world you will continue to suffer hardships. In this world you will continue to have your heart broken. But remembering that the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us, will put all of those hardships and challenges into their proper perspective. For Jesus has revealed that which is most weighty and significant to us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So in the midst of your hardships, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen.